Well, Romans 16 is our next uh, passage we're going to look at this evening. Romans 16, verses 1 to 16. And I warn you in advance, there's lots of names in this passage. Um, And I'm just making excuses in case I mess some of them up. Romans 16. Before we read, let's pray together. Father, we we ask that you'd help us uh, to gain from your word as we read it, even this list of names. That, Lord, you'd encourage us as we think through just what Paul is doing here in this list. And that, Lord, you would teach us how to live as Christians. Where we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of Romans. Uh, coming into land, as it were. The flaps are down and getting ready for the bump. But Paul says in verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Ken Cray, that you may welcome her in the Lord's in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow uh, prisoners. They are well known to the apostles And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, and who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So, this is the second last time I think that we will, uh, or maybe the third last, that we'll look at Romans. But as I said, we're coming into land, I think. And uh, I think the last chapters of the longer books are sometimes, uh, we can just skim over them and think, well, they're not very important. (laughs) They're just a list. And we can skip over that quite quickly. Uh, And we might be thinking, well, what's the next thing that we're going to be dealing with? Um, But it's really important that we pause and just think, what is Paul doing here with this book? Um, Every word in scripture counts. Um, it matters, all of it. Uh, God 
you know, if we believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, the inerrant, infallible Word of God, then all of it is from God, and all of it is important in some way or other. And so we need to, to pay attention to it. And that we can benefit from it by just meditating on some of the things that we find here. So we do need to pay attention uh, to the words. And actually, as you do think about it, let me encourage you, that as you do think about all these people that Paul mentions here, there's something very heartwarming about it. It's wonderful. Um, As he closes his letter, it shows us some of the marvelous things that are happening in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, marvelous things. And we can look at it and think, wow, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, And then you begin to think about your own life, and you begin to think about your life of your own church, and you think, well, what contribution can can I make uh, to model myself on, and that we can model ourselves on this this pattern that Paul is laying out before us. Uh, Paul is is reveling uh, and glorying in the existence of the church. If you look back to 15, verse 14, he says, a stri- well, it seems like a strange thing. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, uh, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. What an amazing thing to say about a church. I'm satisfied about you. You are full of goodness. Uh, often our experience of churches is not quite like that. Maybe not quite as high as that. And we have some difficult experiences sometimes. But Paul is so encouraging here. I mean, he may be aware, aware of problems, but he wants to encourage folks. Are you wanted to come in? <laughs> are you coming to join us? Or are you? <laughs> so, so what we have here, what we have here, is a list of instructions from Paul for someone in the church to greet a number of individuals. And there are 27 people named in this list, and 26 of them are to be greeted. Um, And that's a remarkable number of people. Um, There have been times in this church when we haven't had 26 people to greet. Uh, So this is a, a... a substantial number from our perspective. There's one person who's named who's not to be greeted, and that's Phoebe. But rather, Paul's instruction to the church is for them to welcome her into their midst and give, give her help. And it's quite likely that Phoebe was the, the person delivering the letter uh, to the church. Uh, as you can see from verse 1, she's from a place called Kencray. It's a, we're having a discussion, is it Sencray or Kencray uh, this afternoon? And it's actually a kappa, which is a K in the Greek, so I prefer Kencray. It's, uh, it's C there. Um, it's written as C. But, um, and Kencray is, uh, is, is near Corinth. Uh, and it's possible that Paul wrote the letter uh, to the Romans from from there, uh, while he was in Corinth. And so in this letter, we have this wonderful portrait of the church, where uh, this is no longer a church that's spoken of in generalities. You know, we often speak about the church in generalities. And Paul writes about the church in generalities sometimes. But here it comes down to real people. 
uh, real situations. People who have been grafted into the body of Christ, who have been added to the number of the church. You think of that wonderful image in, in Romans chapter 11 of, of people being grafted in to that, that tree. And here, all these people have been grafted in. And they're sharing their lives together and sharing in the, uh, in the, the work of the church. And I want to, uh, as we just go through this, I want to do three things this evening. Um, I want us to skim through the list <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and see the range of different kinds of people that you find in the church. And it takes all sorts of people. Then secondly, I want us to look at what Paul commends them for. In other words, look at what they did, what the good things that they were doing in the church. We can learn from that. And then thirdly, to note the wonderful unity of the church uh, that seems to be present in Rome. Uh, So first of all, um, look at all the range of people here. Look at all the people that are described here. When Paul writes to, to to the Galatians, it was a few years earlier, I think, uh, writing to the Galatians. He said in in 328, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all all one in Christ Jesus. And we see that here in this list. First, First thing to notice here is there are women as well as men. So it's not all about the men. He does often write to the brothers. Um, but in this list, there are men. Often brothers is, uh, use the male term to refer to everyone. But he's, he includes the women quite prominently uh, in this. There are about nine or ten women who are mentioned here. Um, some examples, Phoebe, verse 1, Prisca, uh, in verse 3, and then verse 12. Uh, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphane and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. That's just to name a few of them. Um, <clears throat> and it's worth just pondering for a second how revolutionary that is in the first century. That um, how women were treated in society was as a lower class of person compared to the men. And if men were wanting to uh, impress each other, they would talk about other men. But Paul is talking about the women who are listed here as well. How radical that is for first century Rome. And I defy you to spot any substantive difference in how, <coughs> how Paul sees the, the place they have and the contribution they make to the life of the church. They may not be office bearers, but they make a substantial contribution to the life of the church. And the only exception that that women can do that men can't do is is shown in in Rufus's mother. Uh, Verse 13, uh, Rufus is a mother. Sorry, Rufus's mother is a mother, but she is also a mother to Paul. And none of the men can do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she is taking that motherly figure to Paul, who needs some help and encouragement uh, from a mother figure uh, that he might be able to press on. And it's one of the things that, uh, that marks out the church of Jesus Christ that 
men and women, they play their part in the church. They <clears throat> contribute what they can, and every part of it is valued and commended by Paul. He recognizes all of it, all the contributions that uh, church members make. And then also to notice that there are Jews and Gentiles in the church. You notice in, in a couple of places, uh, Paul refers to his kinsmen. We've come across this before. So in verse 7, <clears throat> greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. And then in verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. So Herodion is a, a kinsman. And clearly he doesn't mean his personal family. But what he does mean is his fellow Jews. He's already referred in chapter 9 to his, his fellow Jews. Uh, remember how earlier in, uh, in that chapter he was talking a lot about the Jews and talking about the, uh, the problems that might come into the minds, their minds as he unfolds the gospel. But for Paul, this is not just a theoretical group of people. Uh, this is a real bunch of people. Uh, Paul knows that some of the, these Jews have been converted and are in the congregation, but they're still wrestling to fit everything together. So there are Jews in the congregation. And those Jewish names are, are mingled with many Roman names. There are many Gentiles who have many other problems. In other words, we have a church here that's made up of people uh, of all kinds who have come to living faith in Jesus Christ. But now they are in one church. One united single church. <clears throat> So a bit of a frog in my throat this evening. <coughs> and then there are some rich and some poor. Perhaps even some had been slaves. There are some who are clearly wealthy enough to own property and host the meetings of the church. For example, Priscilla and Aquila in verse 5. He says this, uh, greets also the church in their house. And on the other hand, it may well be that Narcissus, who is mentioned uh, further down um, at the end of verse 11, it may well be that that uh, Narcissus is the same Narcissus who was part of the, the court of Claudius. An interesting thing about, so Claudius is, uh, was before Nero, um, an interesting thing about Narcissus was, he started off life as a slave, that Narcissus. But he rose to the highest points uh, in the Roman Empire. And now Paul is commending his family, uh, those who, in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. So pe people have been converted from the, the highest echelons of society and also from the lowest echelons of society. And then there are some individuals that you might know and have heard of before. There's Pris Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila. And they appear in Acts chapter 18. They accompany Paul from Corinth back to Syria when returning, uh, and then returning to Ephesus. And then there is Rufus. <coughs> Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And and I think that's quite interesting. Do you know who Rufus was? There's one other Rufus that's mentioned in the Bible. 
uh, in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And he was the son of Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried the cross of Jesus. So here's Rufus. Is it the same Rufus? Could be. The same Rufus is turned up in Rome. And Mark mentions that Rufus. He doesn't have to explain who that Rufus is because the people that Mark is writing to would know that Rufus because he's a Christian. And here's that same Rufus in Rome. And Rufus's mother, wife of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross and became like a mother to Paul. An amazing story. How God pulls all these people together and begin to serve in the most amazing ways to bless one another. It's an amazing picture to me. Uh, it's an amazing just to think that Paul is writing to, to a church amongst whom there were some who had a close involvement with Jesus directly in his earthly ministry. So Paul looks on all of these people who are all closely bound to Jesus and to each other, and to whom Paul himself feels bound. And he looks at them with all, all with great affection and love. And we can see this just in the way that he speaks of several of them as beloved or my beloved, his brothers and sisters whom he loves. And here's the interesting thing. Paul's never been to Rome. He's not been to Rome yet. He's calling them Beloved. He may have met some of them in various parts of his missionary journeys. He may have heard of others. But he sees now how God has gathered them all together in a church by his spirit from this rich variety of of backgrounds to be the church of Jesus Christ. That's the nature of the church, isn't it? I'm always struck by, you know, when I have contact with other ministers of other churches and elders in the other churches. And they speak of the number of nationalities that are in their church. They speak of the range of people that are in their church. And our church is kind of like that too. Many nationalities, many different economic backgrounds and social backgrounds. But we're brought together by the wonderful work of the Spirit of God through the gospel. And God has been at work in his providence to do that, to order your circumstances, my circumstances, changing your jobs, creating those chance encounters so that some of you come to this, have been coming to this church in ways that you didn't plan for five years ago, ten years ago. But here you are. So look at all these people. Secondly, look at what they did. See how the Lord shaped them in service to the Lord. <clears throat> Let's see what the grace of God did in their lives. See how God changed their character and shaped them. And let me point to just three character traits that mark the church. The first is to look at, to look at Phoebe, a servant of the church, or sometimes translated a deacon of the church. That sets the cat among the pigeons. Can women be deacons? I'm not going to go into that. I don't think that's the most important thing. Um... Phoebe is from Cancray in, uh, in Greece, and she is described as a, a servant of that church. And, and there's more than that. She is, she's also described as a, 
a patron of many and of myself as well. What's a patron? Well, a patron is somebody who has the power and influence to support, protect, and champion something. You know, so a patron is, has got money and uses their name and their reputation to, to support something. And this is Phoebe. Clearly a woman of some influence, quite likely rich and of independent means. But she is using that influence for the sake of the gospel and supporting Paul in his ministry. How did Paul get his... How is he he able to eat? (laughs) Well, people supported him. People like Phoebe supplied all that he needed and his team that he was traveling with. And that's probably why she is able to convey this letter. She has a great interest in the work of Paul and she wants to communicate on his behalf. And she has become a Christian, not just a church attender, but a great servant to the church. She has come to realize that in the providence of God, she has been given the means to support the advance of the kingdom of God, the advance of the gospel. And so she's become this patron that wants to get involved and use her wherewithal to get involved in supporting Paul and many others, supplying the needs of gospel workers, supplying the needs of churches, so that they can press on and advance the gospel. This is someone, I think, who's had their eyes opened and her life changed herself from the inside out. And then this is what she does as a Christian. This is what Christians do. If their lives are changed, they begin to become servants in whatever capacity they're able. Become servants. So it's Phoebe. And then there's uh, Prisca and Aquila. And Paul adds something about Prisca and Aquila that Luke in the book of Acts doesn't. Uh, It is that they are risk takers. That's a scary thing. They are risk takers. They risked their necks for Paul. Greet Prisca and Aquila, verse 3, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. What an amazing thing. It's such an unusual statement that you've got to think, yeah, maybe it's literally true. Um, Maybe there was a time when when their their lives and their necks were hanging in the balance. And it was touch and go whether they'd survive. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But it's with gratitude that Paul remembers them. This couple of risk takers. What an amazing thing. To have a church with risk takers in it. They're willing to stick their neck out. Now just think about that for a second. When people become Christians, they may rightly get the idea that they need to be able to risk all for Jesus Christ. And I've never met a Christian who's not said that that's true. They may even be pushed to, to agree with it themselves. Let me ask you, how, how does that actual risk-taking manifest itself in real life? Well, it manifests itself in taking risks for other people in the church. That's what Paul is talking about here. In Matthew chapter 25, we'll get to it eventually, 
in our morning services. But Matthew 25, Jesus explains that to give food, drink, and clothing to brothers and sisters is to give them, give them to Jesus. Uh, give them Jesus. Uh, to give them to Jesus, rather. Um, and, you know, a way of serving Jesus is to serve other people in the church. And I sometimes think that we've kind of forgotten that about the Christian discipleship, that we think we, we serve Jesus in our own little personal bubbles by having a quiet time and a prayer time, which is all very important. But actually, the way that we serve Jesus is to serve practically one another. And Paul is showing us through Prisca and Aquila the, w- <clears throat> the way of showing sacrificial commitment to Christ. The way to do that is to make that neck-risking commitment to one another. I don't know what that means for you or for me. But it's worth asking the question, when did the last cost you to serve another Christian? Or to serve somebody in the church? To really put yourself out for other people. I was, we were having a conversation about deacons this afternoon. And um, I don't know if I should say this. Maybe I should say it. I'll say it and see what happens. I think when it comes to service, there are probably three categories of people. It's my, it's my opinion, so you can ditch it if you like. There are people who are totally switched on and are constantly serving and looking for something to do. You don't need to tell them. You don't need to ask them. They're asking you, what can I do? And when they know what to do, they start doing it. And they just get on with it and do it. These are real servants in Christ. The second category is people who, who will do something if you ask them, but they won't put themselves forward. They'll just do their own thing. And if they get asked that, yeah, sure, I'll help out. Um, that's a different category. And we'd really like people to move up to the first category. There's a third category of people who just don't do anything. They always find excuses not to serve. They find reasons not to bother. Find who never offer themselves for anything. Who never put themselves out for anyone. And that's a sad category. wonder if what category you might think of yourself in. Do you put yourself out for other people in this church? Do you maybe say to yourself, I'll, I'll do this, and I'll do it now and again, but I can never do that, that's too much. You have boundaries that you're willing to set. What are you willing to do for other Christians? How much are you willing to put yourself out? How much neck-risking commitment are you going to make? the church of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, there's the... So you've got the servants, you've got the, the risk takers, and then you've got the workers. Um, so read about Mary in verse 6. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Verse 9, Urbanus. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. In Christ. Uh, or Tryphena and Tryphosa, verse 12. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, women who worked hard. Or Persis, in verse 12. And it's not just that we're doing a wee job now and again. 
This is labor, you know, labor, hard, hard work. Just continually switched on, doing the stuff that needs to be done. And the church is made up of people who actually do work. You know, there's got to be some people who do the work of the gospel. Well, it ranges from preaching the gospel to practical things like just organizing things and planning things and putting things out and stuff like that. When I was in industry, I, you know, I, I learned, you know, some of you have come across this, but the Pareto principle, you know, the 80-20 rule, maybe you've heard it that way. And uh, when I was in industry, we always learned this, that 80% of the benefit was gained, obtained by 20% of the improvements. So you could make a list of all the possible improvements, but only 20% of them would really get you the 80% that you need, you know, the really beneficial things. So that 80-20 rule is, uh, it seems to apply in so many areas of life. I sometimes wonder if it applies in the church. You know, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And I've heard it regularly in church life, and I've been to several churches in my lifetime, where the common word is the same people do the same work. The same people do most of the work. The same people do most of the work. And it's not just because these people are superhuman or specially gifted or anything. It's just actually because they're gripped by the grace of God. Gripped by the grace of God. And it's changed them. And they want to be servants, and they're ready to serve. And they want to grow in all of these things. And so they labor for the Lord. Because they want to see the gospel spread and Jesus Christ glorified. And so I ask you this evening, do you labor for the Lord? Do you work hard for the Lord? It's a sign of grace. Grace in your life. But lastly, very very briefly, look at the unity of the people of God. This is about the church. Taken together, this is about the church. A church about which Paul is satisfied. A church which he loved. And it's all the more remarkable that Paul has such a love for individuals in Rome that he's he's never visited. But he loves them. He's met some of them, but not all of them. But he knows the names of them. That's an interesting thing. He knows so many names. And households and groups and how they meet together. He shows an interest in them. And I wonder, you know, what kind of conversations does Paul have to have to be able to get that information when he's traveling around all other parts of the Mediterranean? Do you get a sense of the kind of interest that Paul must have shown in individuals in the, in the local church that he's never been to? You know, he sits down with a, somebody he's met from Rome, say, that he's never met before. He says, tell me about some of your people. Tell me about how they are. How they're going on with the Lord. And Paul laps up all this news and all these signs of grace and growth in the local church that he's never been to. And Paul then seems to bear them on his heart. He remembers them. And I'm sure he prayed for the church. And not simply a general prayer for the church. Lord, bless the church in Rome, which you can pray. But pray for the names of the people he's heard about in the church. To go through them 
and to bring them before the Lord, to plead with God before the throne of grace for those people, he's, some of them he's never met before. What an amazing thing. What a heart he has. And it's a sign of real love for the saints when you pray for them by name and in your mind's eye you bring them before God in prayer and you ask him for what they need. And prayer is a sign of real interest and concern for people. It's a real expression of love for you to pray personally for people. What what a marvelous thing. Oh, the warmth of a praying, loving church. The two things go hand in hand. Love and prayer go together. And did you notice that that unity in love is shown in a very uh, practical uh, way? In verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, some of us read that and we're a bit disturbed by that. (laughs) Do you mean we should start doing that? Um, some of us might be disturbed especially us blokes are we going to do that but it's interesting that this love is to be shown through physical touch and I think uh, you know, in a kiss in this case not sensual, not erotic but holy and here's, a, here's a, an interesting quote I found uh, John Murray, you may have heard of the theologian John Murray from the last century Scottish Presbyterian from the, way up north the northwest of Scotland. Uh, you know, you might think of him as a doer Scotsman. Um, but what does he say about that, that verse? He says, It betrays an unnecessary reserve, if not the loss of ardor of the church's first love, when the holy kiss is conspicuous by its absence in the Western church. That's doer Scotsman saying, It betrays unnecessary reserve, if not the loss of ardor of the church's first love, when the holy kiss is conspicuous by its absence in the Western church. I'll just finish with a story. I remember as a young student hearing a a woman who had been a faithful servant of the Lord. She she and her husband had been a missionary, missionaries in the Far East. And... um, At one point she lost her husband and she became a widow. And she said, once at a church meeting, I think, she said the one thing that she noticed most of all was the loss of touch through the loss of her husband. And that she noticed that Christians seemed to have a problem with taking her hand or giving her a kiss of welcome. I think that's a sad story. May it never be in our church. Now, I, I don't want to freak people out and say you need to kiss each other, but you know, whatever is culturally appropriate, at the very least, let's be warm towards one another and warmly greet each other. And if it's appropriate, give a kiss or a friendly pat in the back or something, just something that shows the warmth of Christian people getting together to greet each other in whatever way is appropriate. May that become a normal thing in our church. Let's not have our Western reserve get in the way of expressing a loving greeting. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful picture of the, of the church of Jesus Christ here uh, in Romans 16. And we pray that you would help us to apply the things, some, some of the things that we've heard. That we would evaluate our lives in the light of this picture of the church that Paul paints. And that we would uh, be workers, we'd be servants, be risk takers, be loving towards one another. In Jesus' name, amen.